Well, it's almost holiday season. Well, I guess it is a holiday season. Happy Thanksgiving, Joel. I guess we both had Thanksgiving. I, I saw some pictures on on Slack of, of a turkey slash cranberry oh, meal. Yeah, delicious. <laughs> Rosemary, you, you did see that you did see that big plate. Joel Joel was not cutting back at Thanksgiving. Well, no. time. You can't see you can't see my belly underneath the camera here, but it's still big. <laughs> yeah, so us Americans are pretty full from the the Thanksgiving holiday. It it was actually a really nice holiday. We we had decent weather in America and there was really no travel hiccups. Thank goodness everybody got home safe. Uh this week for the podcast, we have a lot going on. And again, it's one of these crazy news weeks where there's just so much renewable news happening. Uh, Vestas is is working with TPI on manufacturing blades and maybe making some off, offshore blades, it sounds like, which would be great for TPI and for Vestas. And then uh, Siemens is going to be closing a plant in Morocco, a blade plant in Morocco. Uh, and it looks like OEMs are starting to get out of the blade business and transfer some of the load onto uh, independent operators. And more good news for Vestas with a big order in Australia. And then a couple of other Australian stories. There's a one gigawatt wind farm planned in Queensland that's now been announced it will double in size to two gigawatts. Um, and also looking forward, Australia's energy market operator has mapped out a route to 100% instantaneous renewables, which they expect to happen in 2025. So we'll talk about some of the engineering things they have to take care of before that can happen. Uh, so then we're jumping back over to the UK and we'll talk about Tesla building a uh, what, would, what would be Europe's largest battery into the grid. And it's right near where the Dogger Bank wind farm is off or coming ashore. So uh, really cool to see the those additions to the grid in the UK and see what it can happen in the future. And last but not least, a French man wins the right not to be fun at work. So we'll, we'll dive into that and have a little bit of a prelude to our holiday season around the world and uh, have a little fun with it. I'm Alan Hall, president of WeatherGuard Lightning Tech, and I'm here with Australian renewables guru, Rosemary Barnes, and my good friend from Wind Power Lab, Joel Saxon. And this is the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. All right, Rosemary, Vestas has signed a multi-year agreement with uh, one of your former competitors, TPI Composites. And uh, this gets into the future of who's going to make blades, particularly in the United States. But I I think this is going to move worldwide. TPI is already making blades for Vestas, has made them for a little while in the two and the four megawatt uh, marketplace. Uh, But they're talking about making some investments and expanding production capabilities to handle the V163 4.5 megawatt machine and the V236 15 megawatt machine. And I believe the V236 15 megawatt is an Equinor machine, I think, for offshore, if I remember that correctly. Uh, So the TPI has a facility that was making blades in Rhode Island, and they had stopped, but that may be opening again now because it's really close to the shoreline. And there's a bunch of a bunch of agreements like this. There seems to be a lot of, of movement around in terms of who's going to be building blades. Is it going to be the OEMs or are they going to sub out the work? And it looks like, at least in the States, we're going to be subbing out a large part of that. Does, this, does that make sense, Rosemary, to start kind of like GE with LM, right? I mean, that was sort of a supplier agreement early on. Is, is that the future? Yeah, I think it's... It's the past as well, and maybe it's going to be a bit different in the future. So with GE, it was a bit different because when GE started, they didn't have any blade manufacturing capabilities. So they had LM and TPI making blades for them. They had blade design in-house, but I know at LM at least they don't. um, Every blade that LM manufactures is a blade that LM designed. They don't do any build-to-print, but TPI do build-to-print. I don't know if it's exclusively. They probably have a blade design team as well. Um, and LM, I mean, LM, before it got bought by GE, it didn't have any, you know, it, it didn't make any, any of the rest of the parts of wind turbines. So it was only making blades to supply to other manufacturers. And all of those manufacturers would use LM blades in addition to their own blades, usually, usually as a, a kind of a supply chain diversification idea, you know, a little bit of, um, 
a backup plan in case something went wrong. Um, you don't want to have a, a single supplier for any critical component and yeah, even if that's, you know, something that you're making yourself, um, that's just something can still go wrong. But I wonder if um, the future, more of the same, but maybe with increasing emphasis on the, you know, third party supplied parts. And I can see that it kind of makes sense for like, if you take somewhere like Australia, for example, we're very far away from any existing um, wind farms. I think most of the blades that go to Australia are, are made in, in India or China usually. So it's, um, right. you know, quite a distance to get them there. Um, it's a big going to be a big it has been a big market and it's going to be a very big market moving forward there's a lot of plans um and i think we'll talk about some of those later in the the episode today um but you know for a, a company to start a factory there that company needs to have lots of sales in the area whereas if you have someone like tpi who are making blades for all sorts of manufacturers and they could supply you know vestas um wind farms they could supply siemens um you know or all of them, GE. Right. <laughs> so I can see how it makes sense for new locations like that. And um, yeah, maybe maybe we will see a lot more of that in the future. It's, it's lower risk for the, um, the wind turbine manufacturers, at least. You know, it's a lot of work to start up a new factory and they need to be really sure that their pipeline is, you know, really secure, that they're going to have um, orders to fill it for the next few years. Well, Joel, does it make sense that a TPI builds blades for several different OEMs? Uh, and if they're going to do that, why? If especially if, say they're making a three megawatt uh, blade for GE and they're making a three megawatt blade for Siemens Gamesa, mm -hmm. which eventually will happen, would they just not use the same blade design? Doesn't that make sense? If you're going to be in the in the manufacturing space, why would you have two molds, two different setups where you can just cause yourself mistakes? If wouldn't it be it makes sense for someone like a TPI to say, "Hey, everybody, let's just settle on one design yeah. here and and make it easier." I think I mean <laughs> so it can make the the products less expensive. That used to happen in the past. Some designs were you just yeah. like, "Hey, we we need some of those LM forty point threes, and you could just bolt them on to whatever turbine you want." But I think as we see uh, wind turbine technology. Uh, innovation cycles going so fast everybody's trying to get that little bit of edge right so you start to see more you know of course aggressive blade designs um, and i don't think that and you know and, and it's for low wind speed versus high wind speed and the little specifics here and there and as you see more of those things change i don't think you're going to see uh that much you might ha you might have okay so yeah say you have a tpi factory and you have a bunch of really skilled technicians you might instead of having you know, a three megawatt blade that fits a bunch of different platforms, you might have two or three lines, uh, production lines of different kinds. Because I know like TPIs also makes Entercon blades. You know what I mean? So, right. so they, yeah. they, they'll make different yeah. ones for different manufacturers. And I just don't see the, while it probably is more um, economically feasible to have, you know, for the, the industry as a whole, uh, everybody, all the different OEMs want to have their, their edge in the marketplace. So I, th I don't think you'll see that. Um, they, they, everybody wants a little bit of a custom thing. Yeah, I, yeah. I LM I, did um did attempt to do that years ago because uh, I mean they had the same thoughts that you're having, Alan. I, I assume it's, it's so obvious that it, you know you get the economies of scale and um right. you can get better reliability uh, if you have more blades out there to to learn from. You get you know better and better at it every time. But yeah, LM gave it a pretty red hot go of uh, ten years ago or maybe even more. Um and yeah, probably more. And they just didn't really sell. I think that the issue is that um, it, yeah, there's no, there's no way to make different turbines. Um, like to, to get the the edge in technology to have the best turbine, you can't do that if you can't change the blade. I mean, the blade's where it all starts. That's a part that's going to capture the energy and all the, you know, the loads in the blade are transferred to the rest of the, the turbine. So, I mean, if you all had the exact same blade everywhere across the world, then everything else would look start to look very much the same as well. So you kind of stagnate. So I'm not sure if overall it would lead to a better, uh, yeah, a better system. Um mm. So I'm not. I'm and not sure. On the one hand, it makes sense, but on the other hand, I can't actually see it ever ever happening. Yeah. Well, Joel, am I wrong about this? But the American uh, auto manufacturers, I, I don't think Ford makes their own engines anymore, right? I think there's 
They make a Talk couple about of a critical them. component. You're, they make a couple of them. Yeah, yeah, right. So but they didn't outsource the probably the most critical component of the yeah. of the car is but, the engine, and but they set up outsourcing that. They set up uh, agreements too, like okay, so now if we're talking cars, like trying to equate yes. the two. If you go tires, now tires are not. I mean, they're they're a critical component. You can't get down the road without tires, but the tire <laughs> isn't going to make or break a vehicle, right? Like you can have a little bit like sure. if you're you're in a Corvette, yeah, your tires are a little bit different than they are yes. in a, a passenger car, but but they don't make or break it. Now the engine and transmission combination that might be something that make or break that model of car. So even if Ford is outsourcing what engine they're building, they're going to have an agreement that this is the only engine that this thing can go in, besides specific models, right? So okay, so they may have someone yeah, outsource outsource build it, but they're going to say, hey, that is just for us. That doesn't go in. You know, they're not giving away the 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 uh, what's the new motor they got? The Coyote 5.0 liter. They're not letting anybody else have the Coyote 5.0 liter, even though they're not probably manufacturing it themselves. You know what I mean? So yeah. So in that way, it's similar yeah. to TPI making blades for somebody. Um, yeah, their they're, they're, blades are outsourced, but the that custom model of like when we were at Hamburg, uh, Enercon was debuting that uh, 75 meter blade that the 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 right. I think it's, yeah. or the 175 platform, whatever it was, they're not going to, because that's their new hot rod in the in the marketplace that they're counting on for sales, they're not going to let everybody have that same blade design. Um, so, Bro, and Rosemary, are these blades really that different? Really? Um, yes and no. I, I mean, they all do the same thing. And, um, you know, if you gave any designer the airfoils that you know Siemens was making and the wind right. speed that it should should operate in then they would come up with very 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 similar geometry for the okay. the blade um so in that sense no there's some innovations with manufacturing um and i i mean yes. throughout the years if you look back at like big changes they have made a difference for a few years like I know at LM they, you know, you focus a lot on IP and um, patents and that sort of thing. And every right. patents lecture I'd go to, they would bring up the by far the most successful patent that LM ever had was for pre-bending the blades. So, you know, they uh, were the first ones to bend the blades away from the tower when they were unloaded, so that when the wind hit them when they were operating they would just kind of get to straight, which is better aerodynamically and also gives further to go before it um, hits the tower. So that was only LM blades had that for, you know, the life of that patent, which I believe is expired wow. now. Um, and so that, that was huge for them. And then there's been some other ones as well with materials, you know, figuring out how you can use um, carbon fiber and preforms and maybe carbon fiber fiberglass blends Um all these sorts of things don't sound like to somebody at the bottom of a wind turbine. That's not something that you're going to notice looking up at it and be like, oh, wow, that's a that's an LM blade. But they certainly made a difference for annual energy production and for, you know, the, the cost of the blades. Um, so, mm. yeah, it's uh, I guess it's, to answer that question, it's like what's a significant difference? Um, and what's a significant, significant difference to a... Uh, engineer is um maybe different to everybody else <laughs> right well there seems to be some more consolidation in the blade manufacturing group siemens gamesa is going to close their factory in morocco a blade blade factory which again goes back to how much work are the oems really going to do if they're if they're closing the blade factory in Morocco and and Siemens Gamesa has a big footprint in Africa in general, uh, it, it would it seems like they're definitely consolidating and work and thinking about off offsetting some of those expenses onto to another company to take the responsibility of that. Now, uh, Siemens Gamesa cited a whole bunch of different factors for why they were closing the factory, but they are Ukraine of all things, uh, aluminum prices. Uh, chain supply chain problems, competition, you know, the, the usual stuff, but that would apply worldwide. Why, why Morocco? Uh, it just, especially since you're close to the shoreline, it's, it makes sense to keep that blade factory open. If you're trying to deliver blades up to the Mediterranean or somewhere, that would make sense. Uh, but it, I think the consolidation continues because uh, we also see uh, a shift south towards uh, Australia of all places. Vestas has got a big, 
project down in Australia, the Golden Plains Wind Farm, where they, they've secured a big order for 756 megawatts of turbines. So it'll be 122 V162 6.2 megawatt machines. That's big. And Joel, are you ready for this? They have a 30-year service, yeah. a, service and maintenance agreement to go with that. Wow. I mean, but that's standard in Australia, right? I mean, um, Rosemary, correct me if I'm wrong, but most, it of the, is. most of the industry down there runs on FSAs. But 30 years. Man. That's a great, yeah, man, the guy who the signed that contract. That yeah. Vestas must right? really, really yeah. trust in that V162. Yeah. Yeah. I'd really be interested to see what's in these, in these agreements in terms of, you, you know, cause you just trust them then to maximize your asset to make sure that they're, um, you know, operating, operating efficiently and, and got the best yeah. maintenance strategy and, you know, an availability guarantee or mm -hmm. a performance guarantee that can really only set like minimum acceptable levels. And I just, I, I'm constantly surprised that developers in Australia don't seem to be concerned about, you know, like um, two, five, 10% maybe, you know, improvements that they could be making years into the future by adopting a different operational maintenance strategy. You just kind of I don't know. Uh, you're obviously leaving something on the table if um, you trust somebody else to operate and do the the service because, you know, say that you've got a, a problem and you're going to have to repair a bunch of blades. They're really only worried about making sure they meet that minimum level. They're not going to be, you know, I assume that they won't be proactive to get them up as soon as possible and to be, um, you know, like maximizing yield, but maybe they've got some sort of bonus payment in there. Uh, I, I don't know. But uh, yeah, like I said, I'd really love to see these contracts because uh, developers are so trusting of these OEMs to, uh, yeah, give them 30, 30 years. Um, so so well, if they yeah. only had somebody consulting in Australia that knew those details, <laughs> they could help them. I, I just don't know anybody though. Do you? <laughs> Well, that's why I'm so interested because, uh, yeah, I'm the I'm the one um, who's in there in the conversations trying to translate between Danish engineer and you know Australian developer and um, make sure that that all the problems are are under control. So, yeah, I wonder if we <laughs> we will be hearing from that developer at Palo Consulting. Maybe maybe we'll be working together in the future. So here's a question for you, Rosemary. What's what is if we're, if we're going energy sale to the grid, now let's let's calculate this. I got a spreadsheet open here. Any energy sale to the grid at a kilowatt hour, what is a what's a wholesale price in Australia right now? Uh well, it, it varies obviously from day to day. I can look it up right now um, <laughs> and tell you what it is. This second, forty cents. Just opening open opennem.org.au and. Yeah, well, um, if I go on to one day over the the last twenty four hours, we've seen two fifty seven sixty two per megawatt hour. Okay, so two fifty seven. So divide that by a thousand. Yeah. So uh, two hundred fifty seven dollars. Is that what you just said? Yeah, it, I mean it's an expensive. That's an Australian though, right? Expensive uh, day. <laughs> That's yes, almost an American true. dollar. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, so like 160 or something um, US. Yep. So yeah. so I'll, I'll go. Uh, See what I'm saying? Joel? That's crazy. So 160. That's one. For <laughs> no, but that's not the average. No. That is, that's the immediate price, right? So spot price. Yeah, but that that at a so yeah. in oh actually it's it's one one sixty two. Oh, I uh, misread that. So, Joe, we got to install some wind turbines uh, in yeah. Australia. So, so, but, but, so, with that spot price right now, in you, this is in U.S. dollars. If you're at uh, sixteen cents a kilowatt hour, that's twenty four about twenty four thousand U.S. dollars per turbine per day. With the size of that wind farm, you're mm -hmm. looking at three almost three million U.S. dollars in revenue per day. At now, now that's at one hundred percent capacity. So, if you drop one percent of that, I mean, you're talking that's thirty grand. If you drop one percent, so they mm. must really trust in that. That you're, now, if you're talking, if they're trying to hit a minimum and they're just kind of bouncing through there, if they drop one, two, three, four, five percent, one hundred fifty thousand a day. If you're at five percent, that's crazy. 
So, I mean, yeah, I, I agree. It's something that I can't get my head around why there's so much of it here, because before I came back to Australia, the um, the operators that I was working with were really proactive um, about, you know, trying new maintenance strategies and operational strategies. Uh, I was working that was mostly Canadian ones. I, I was in a few wind farms in Quebec um, where they're pretty innovative. Um, and then, yeah, in um, northern Sweden, but those were just farms under construction. Um and I I talk about it when I when I'm at conferences, industry conferences in Australia, trying to find out. And the impression that I get is that we're just at this different phase of the whole cycle in Australia, where developers are really focused on the next project and um, you know getting projects underway, um, get you know just just more and more and more. That's the kind of easy money at the moment. And I I expect that in five ten years, when that all slows down, um, that then people will be more worried about, you know, getting that one or 2% from existing assets. And I mean, it can be more as well. If you've got an actual problem in in this strategy, um, then you could definitely see 5%. And some of the, you know, I often get brought in to look at serial defect problems um, where, you know, they've got to eventually take down, you know, every blade on a wind farm or um, at least, you know, stop them for a week or something to do repairs on, yeah, maybe not every blade on a wind farm, but, you know, on the affected population, which, you know, could be 10, 20% of blades. Um, the speed that you do that and the way that you do it as well, you know, making sure that you're doing, um, you know, non-urgent maintenance on on days when the wind isn't good or the price of uh, the wholesale spot price is low, you know, there's huge differences that you can make Absolutely. by, um, you know, strategizing on that. And it just really surprises me that the OEMs are so hands-off. But I have also noticed that they seem to be kind of hands-off in the the contract stage when, you know, contracts are being developed and agreements are being signed. But later on when there's a defect and the OEMs that I have worked with, which is most of them by now, are exclusively terrible at communication. <laughs> they, you know, it's like, oh, we've got a serial defect. Don't worry about it. We've got it under control. And that's kind of the end of of what they will communicate at first. And so then the developer's like, well, actually, we don't have anybody on staff who knows anything about blades. Mm-hmm, We've got no mm-hmm. way to tell if um, what they're saying is reasonable or normal or under control or if this is going to be a huge problem. It becomes especially a big problem if you want to sell an asset or refinance or, or anything, then, you know, you need to actually know where you stand. Um, and, yeah, at that point, I think maybe developers, operators are wishing that they had spent, you know, thought about it more at the the stage of the contract. But yeah, like I said, I don't quite understand, but I think it's maybe to do with maturity and just the fact that um, it's just all systems go for getting more turbines in the ground. Now that's, that's what everyone's spending their effort on. And there's only so many engineers in Australia and they're all working on development as far as I can tell. Yeah. With those, Energy prices, Joel. I mean, that, those would be dream prices in America, right? Yeah, but like Rosemary said, that well, we'd have to look at what the levelized cost is over the year to kind of do an apples to apples. Right. Otherwise, that, that was one one day, yeah. and PPAs aren't aren't maybe all yeah. all that much. Um, yeah, you have to give me right. some warning, and I can I can put together <laughs> some stats for next week's episode if you like to get yeah. a a more broad representation. Um, yeah, I'm actually not following the spot price every day because yep. I'm. But I think you're. I'm, I think you're. You're a mechanical engineer, not a <laughs> analyst. <laughs> I think your your supposition is about perfect, though, Rosemary. Everybody's focused on getting these things in the ground, uh, so all the engineering effort right. is is on on development, and and then it's just once they're in, hand it off, and we'll move forward. Um, but that may come back to to bite them in the butt a little bit. Lightning is an act of God, but lightning damage is not. Actually is very predictable and very preventable. Strike Tape is a lightning protection system upgrade for wind turbines made by WeatherGuard. It dramatically improves the effectiveness of the factory LPS so you can stop worrying about lightning damage. Visit weatherguardwind.com to learn more, read a case study, and schedule a call today. Rosemary's talking about uh, all the developments happening in Australia up in Queensland, which I guess is like the Silicon Valley of Australia from what I can tell is set to become one of the, have one of the largest wind farms in the Southern Hemisphere, not just in Australia, uh, with the Queensland government announcing plans to double the size of the McIntyre wind project. So the project already is about a, a, a megawatt, sorry, a gigawatt, and they're going to bump it up to, to two gigawatts. Uh, so it's 180 turbines moving up to 360 gigawatt. turbines. 
Yeah, gigawatts. Uh, sorry, from one gigawatt to two gigawatts, right? So that they figure it's good enough to power about 1.4 million Queensland homes. That's a that's a lot of homes. The Labor government in Queensland, as part of this deal, is talking about establishing a blade factory in the next couple of years up in Queensland. Uh, the the blades that are coming from this new project or the expansion project are will be coming from India, which makes sense. Uh, but this seems like with all the activity in Australia, they're they're wanting to work with somebody, maybe one of the OEMs, maybe one of the operators to create a, a wind turbine manufacturing facility in country. Uh, that makes sense. But Rosemary, as you were just saying engineers they're all kind of tied up working on projects is the infrastructure there for australia to open a blade factory not it's not ready to start tomorrow but you know when new wind turbine okay. blade factories are opened it's usually somewhere where they haven't made wind turbine blades before it's not a it's not a problem it's sure. not like highly 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 skilled labor um <clears throat> i know i was looking at some of the job ads for an lm factory that was opening somewhere one time and it was like if you've ever manufactured anything before then that gives you a big head start but you don't have to have so you know all the tra trainings provided <laughs> so um i don't okay. think it will be such a huge problem to me, it makes sense to, um, you know, if you're going to make an industrial hub, it would make sense to put it um, somewhere that already has a lot of industry that's maybe declining. So, you know, there's a lot of coal mining um, in Queensland. So perhaps um, we can, you know, take some of those workers and, and get them started making wind turbine components. Um, there's a lot of areas like that. I was just visiting um, one at the Hunter Valley um, where Newcastle is a bit north of Sydney and that's, you know, coal country and you know um back when we used to have climate change wars every election the conservative conservatives would always be campaigning in these areas like oh look at all these people who will never work again if we um do anything about climate change and i was up there because i was having a look at a bunch of clean energy projects that that are there there's you know a bunch of startups and um and yeah, yeah just innovative projects by established companies and yeah, all of them uh, are saying, you know, we need we need workers and the skills that we need are really, you know, really similar to mining industry or, you know, other, um, you know, thermal power generation um, workers. Hmm. So I would assume that there would be skill transfer or that would be the way to, you know, maximise the effect. And since, as you mentioned, it's the Labor government that wants to do it, then it would make sense that they would be concerned about the, you know, the workers that um, will be affected when they do this big ambitious um, transition that they're planning. Would there be a company that could operate that business? Uh, who would, who are there companies in Australia that could just add on to their existing business and add on a blade business as part of it? Is that something in play or do you need to bring in someone like a TPI which has plants all around the yeah. world for, for, to come in and to start it? For blades, I would be, just highly, highly, highly surprised if it was just an Australian company. And I know I did read an article by um, a commentator who I, I really, really like, but he was saying that uh, Australia makes surfboards, so um, why not wind turbine blades? And I don't think that that <laughs> is a relevant skill transfer. They, they both use foam and fiberglass, so, you know, there's that. Um, but And wind turbine blades are largely hand handmade, um, but I think it's that whole a big structure of quality control and, you know, or it's not so easy to make a profitable wind turbine blade factory. You know, you've got to get a, a highly choreographed uh, dance practically to, you know, get these blades, hundreds of people making these blades and getting them out the door one, one every day, um, for, you know, operating 24 seven to, to get value out of it. So I think for blades, right. it would definitely be um, an existing manufacturer. Um, otherwise I would expect it to fail. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I think there's heaps of components in a wind turbine that, that Australia could, Australian manufacturers could step up to make. And I know there's already some, you know, parts of towers being made and, you know, all, all sorts of other stuff. Um, and a lot of it obviously has to be made on site. Like you're not going to, you know, um, your foundation has to be kind of, you know, put together in place that it doesn't work otherwise and a bunch of other stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think that that will be the easiest. And if we are going to have blades made here, then 
I guess that it will be TPI. I mean, I saw an article this week, maybe another one that you shared, Alan, that TPI is talking about expansion into other regions and, uh, you know, region, yeah. immediately tweaked in my brain, always, you know, is one of those Australia. Um, I would love to see it. Love to love to help. Give me a call if you if you need some help well, setting up because I would love to see a wind turbine blade factory in Australia. That would make me very happy. Yeah, well, and, and blades aren't the only thing that Australia is going to need to develop, and it sounds like Australia is already pushing forward to a one hundred percent renewable grids. So there's a little bit of technical work to do there still. The Australia's electricity market operator has laid out an engineering roadmap. What I can tell, it looks like uh, they're trying to get the grid to 100% renewable, which is easy to do at times uh, in sort of a statistical way. Like, yeah, we make enough energy to get to 100%, mm-hmm. but we're also sending energy outside of our neighborhood uh, to power other places. So it, and th- those things tend to be really temporary. It's happened in the United States and a couple of places. But in Australia, they're talking about making a 100% renewable grid and stable, and having a stabilized grid where they don't have a lot of natural gas slash coal backing it up. And there's a couple of hurdles there still. Uh, the first one is you, you have a lot of output, right? And you have a lot of variability. You have a lot of rooftop solar and you have wind and, and some hydro, I assume. How are you going to manage all that? And then it's all electronic, right? So the inverters and everything is feeding the grid. You have to have some control over those inverters and and are they doing what we think they're supposed to do? So it sounds, Rosemary, it sounds like Australia is going to be leading that effort to really have a standalone grid. Is there, are there resources to do that? It's a, that's a complicated thing to accomplish it seems like you would need a lot of engineers working on just that problem alone to 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 get a 100% stabilized grid. Yeah, it, it is going to be really interesting and it will be significant for the the world when this happens. Um and I I think it's important to point out like we we've got a pretty progressive government now but only for less than a year. Um they've been in before that the government um for the previous decade was very against renewables. And so this uh, getting to 100% renewables, it's it's not the result of a government saying we need to get to 100% renewables and um, forcing it. It's been the market that's done this. It's just, uh, you know, now it's just the cheapest way to, to generate energy most of the time. And it's the best way that you can make money if you want to, you know, start a new energy project, then you'd be crazy. Sure. If it was anything except for window solar in Australia, plus heaps of rooftop solar as well, um, which, you know, is a decision made by each household. And so we're kind of, we're going to get to that point. Um, how are we going to manage to do that without just, you know, wasting a bunch of energy? And like you said, this report, it lists the kind of nuts and bolts of what we're going to need to to make sure is done by then so that um, the grid doesn't just collapse <laughs> the first time. Right. That, yeah. Um, you know, because if you just had, leave had- the market settings in in place and the all of the thermal generators, the you know, the big spinning mass, if they all get the signal that you need to turn off because you're losing money <laughs> for staying on, um, you know, then the grid becomes really unstable if you haven't thought about how you're going to do it before. So there's a bunch of of challenges. You mentioned some of them. Um, and yes, there's a lot of um, electronic control of, of the grid with um, batteries, um, for yeah. example, um, and, and yeah, synthetic inertia, they call it. Um, right. But there is also the possibility for synchronous condensers, which they're trialing in South Australia now, um, which is basically... It mimics it physically mimics a big thermal generator, so it's a big mass that you use electricity to spin it up, and then it you know it's got that actual mechanical inertia keeping it spinning no matter what happens in the grid. So that's one one way to do it, and then the you know the the batteries um, that do the synthetic inertia. That's uh, that's probably the next step after that. And yeah, there is some some experimentation being done in South Australia, um, one of the states in Australia who's kind of like um, led this transition. They've already had plenty of times where they have instantaneous 100% renewables, but the key difference is that they've got interconnection points to the rest of the main Australian grid, so they can import and export there. So it doesn't matter so much what um, 
you know, what goes on there. But they have been doing a lot of experiments with how to maintain stability and they're down now to you have to always have at least two thermal generators running now to, um, you know, make sure there's that inertia in the system. But they're going to try soon to go to zero and just use these synchronous condensers and um, synthetic inertia. Um, but there wow. was a little bit of a natural experiment recently when there was a storm that knocked out the main interconnector and just left two, I think, two tiny ones. Um, so they were basically islanded for a, a while. Um, and it, it, there was a, a period of really strong, um, you know, renewable availability during the days at least. And, and so they did have more renewables than they could use and had to curtail a lot. And that's why you're going to, one of the things you're going to need to see happen when you get up to the whole Australian grid being 100% renewables is we're going to need a way to control all of the, the different things. You can't just have rooftop solar pumping electrons into the grid, you know, no matter what happens, because that could be really destabilizing at those times. And, you know, bearing in mind that that's actually rooftop solar, it sounds tiny, but it's actually, when you add it up, it's a, a major a source, yeah. bigger than any single generator. Um yeah, so there's there's a lot of a lot of things to be taken care of, but I was really excited that it's 2025. This is predicted to happen. It's not a target that that happens in 2025. It's a prediction. It's like this is coming, and we need to be ready for it. And so well, you know we can we can hold our breath and wait and see see what happens, and hopefully yeah. AEMO uh, makes sure that we're ready for it. As the electrical engineer here. Those things scare me, right? So the, the 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 power quality is a huge issue. Maintaining the frequency on the grid is a big deal, and keeping the the voltage level stable is is an amazing feat that we've seen to do fairly well at this point. We're adding a lot of variability back in, and Joel, you know from what's happened at ERCOT that they've had a lot of trouble with the, um, a relatively small grid compared to what Australia is about ready to do. Is there ways that we can sort of leverage what we're doing in the States and learning in the States and what Australia is about to do or, or doing to provide some stability to the grid? I'll, I'll add another element to it. Did you, Joel, did you see that uh, Tesla uh, was announcing the, the semi-tractor trailer is operational? Oh. That, that they did a long 80,000 pound load uh, run for five, I think it went 500 miles uh, recently in the last couple of days. So they think that that those tractor trailers are going to be on the road, and that we're going to be putting a pretty large demand onto the grid that we hadn't planned for. Yeah, like we were talking about the. Do we have? Yeah, yeah. talking about the other week that those if we have power charging stations for those trucks that the, each of the power charging stations. It. Well, they'll they'll yeah. take as much power as a small city to charge all those vehicles. What I'd like to see. So right. so we were talking about this off air a little bit. Is um, <clears throat> With our listeners being all over the globe, it's nice to get a little bit of a, some information and news from all over the place. And it's really cool what Australia is doing. Uh, to, to me, as a, they're a larger society, right? Like the Danish society runs a lot on, on wind power, but it's a smaller, it's a little bit easier to manage, right? There's only like five, five million people and you can drive across the country in three hours. And it's connected. And it's all connected to, to the, yeah. To it the, is, right. Australia is an island and it is it can't you can't just export everything off offshore um or to a different country um easily enough so i think that there's a lot of really big lessons to be learned from what australia is doing down there right now and i would like to see some of these u.s operators you know ERCOT, we always talk about ERCOT because of of who they are and what they've done but a yeah. lot of these other operators and these other interconnects to to look at what's happening there and to learn from it as as we move forward because they're they're years in front of where we are as far as I'm concerned, like yes. I don't, we talked a couple months ago about Miso putting ten ten billion dollars into the the right. infrastructure just in the Midwest. I mean, and and these big transmission lines are talking about planning going from Wyoming all the way to California, and so we're still. I mean, everybody's you know as as the grid changes in every country and every market, we're still uh, adjusting what the infrastructure looks like. But we should we shouldn't be putting this infrastructure in just like, yeah, just run some cables and throw up some towers and we'll make it work. We should be thinking about it as we go uh, and adjusting for these things. Um, so what what yeah. Australia is doing is is something that the operators and the uh, engineers in the US and, and globally need to be watching because they're, they're ahead of the game, I think. Yeah, we just visited the Hoover Dam recently. And if 
you look back and see how massive that project was and what it was intended to do, how it has evolved over time. It's about a hundred year old project at this point. So it's paid for itself a couple of times over, I assume. But yeah, you're talking about doing Hoover Dam type projects right now, but in renewables. That's what's happening at the moment. And how big of an or uh, how big of a, a cultural change that was for that part of America? Yeah, that's that's coming. That's really coming. It, that's gonna be fascinating to watch. Really is. Dogger Bank and Tesla has uh, t- Tesla has put a big battery at the output of Dogger Bank, which is uh, an offshore wind farm off the coast of the United Kingdom. Uh, so they've added about a hundred megawatt uh, battery. It's about two hundred megawatt hours. Uh, that's right at basically you know, just on shore. So all, all the energy rolls in off, offshore, plugs into this battery, which is there to to provide a little more stability. So again, as we're Joel, you were talking about, you, you're seeing the world take on these different projects to stabilize the grid with renewables. There's there's another one, case in point. And yeah, <laughs> it, it, I think Rosemary, as we were talking about before the show started, you, you th- didn't think that was a very large project, but it's just the first, right? It's the first of probably several. Well, space is a little bit more limited in the UK than it is in Australia. That could be a reason. Yeah. Well, the battery doesn't take up very much space. No, I was just, um, I was surprised to see it described as a, you know, the the, the biggest battery because I, I checked and I think there's five, five bigger than that in Australia and Australia is a much smaller country. So um, uh, population at least. Population wise. Um, yeah, yeah. So I was a bit. Yeah, I was a bit surprised, but it is really interesting to see that. Um, yeah, they're adding a battery to um, you know existing plans. The big battery in combo with a solar farm or a wind farm or, or both that I've seen have usually you, you know been all developed together, or it's been a standalone battery somewhere else. Um, so it's interesting to see it being added on. And I was also interested that yeah, it's an offshore wind farm. One of the topics that. Um, there's a lot of interest in for energy startups recently is offshore energy storage. And to me, battery onshore where the good connection is, that's the, that's the place to do your, your offshore energy storage. Um, so yeah, now we're seeing, seeing that actually happen, um, that will set the benchmark for what any of the, you know, exciting new kinds of ocean energy storage have to be. So yeah, look forward to watching how it plays out. So you think it's going to be how many gigawatts of or terawatts of battery? How many terawatts would the UK need? I think they said four terawatts in America is a rough number, if I remember correctly. If it's hundred yeah, gigawatts, always, kind of thing. The projections are always so much like this is how we run our grid now. We're going to make it yeah. look exactly the same in the future, and it's just not going to be like that. We we are going to get better at flexibly changing our you know the time that we use electricity as well as flexibly supplying electricity. There's just no way we won't because the the last bit of storage you know to make the system look like it does now is just so ridiculously expensive. I mean I've seen when and petrol prices, you know, when there's one petrol station in town who has 10 cents a litre cheaper than everyone else, you get people drive 30 k's to get there. They wait an hour in their car to fill up and save a couple of dollars. Like you're telling me that there's not yeah. enough people who will care that much about their um, their electricity bill, that they're not prepared to, you know, do everything um, in the middle of the day when, you know, solar's um, at peak levels or, you know, in other ways be flexible. I just, I think I find it so crazy that we think that we're, we're just definitely going to do things exactly the way we do now because that's what everyone's used to. I think that will come. And that's Ro- my opinion. Ro- that will come, Rosemary. So like the, one of the reasons why you have that with the fuel prices is it's so dang visible. You drive around and there's a big sign that says, you know, here's how much the price is. To 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 date, you don't get that. Like the energy prices as far as electricity going in mm-hmm. your home, that doesn't happen. Now, when you talk about, uh, I, last week or two weeks ago, we talked about a uh, uh, you know an app based uh, system that you look at your phone and you can see how much energy you've been used, how much money you're making, all that kind of stuff. As that becomes mm. more commonplace, I think you will have. I mean, one of the biggest things in in energy and and my humble non electrical engineering opinion is people just waste energy. I mean, it's, it's back to when mm. you were a kid, like close close the refrigerator. What are you doing? Like, t- you know, turn the lights off, like that kind of stuff. But that that is something that we don't. As I know, as an American society, for sure, we don't take into consideration that much. But if you had on your phone, like your phone was like ding. Mm. 
hey, you've used $10 of energy already today. Oh, man, I better turn these lights off. So, you know, if as that becomes more and more common, I think you might have people actually conserving energy, you know, at the, you know, and instead of using it in, in, in waste, is, is my thought. Yeah, I think you're definitely right that the first step is awareness. And, you know, I mentioned that I worked with some, um, you know, really innovative uh, wind farm operators in Quebec. And I remember this one, I walked into their their office and they had this huge screen up with the current price of electricity. And um, it was like, I don't know, it looked like a, a gambling screen or something. It showed how much money they were they were making every every minute, it, you know, ticked over and they, um, and that really drives, oh, do I really need to go up and, you know, check the, you know, whatever talk of the de-icing system bolts in, <laughs> today? Do I need to do that today? Um, when, you know, we're making so much money, uh, maybe I'll save it a lot. Look at the forecast. Okay. It's going to be, um, less windy later in the week, or it's going to be more sunny. So the price of electricity will be lower. And the same with some of the innovative companies in Australia, I went into Neo um, operating room and had a look and they've got uh, like a thousand, a thousand screens in there with, with numbers. And yeah, very prominently, you can see exactly what the price of electricity is and what they're earning. Maybe it'll be the same in people's homes. You know, you've got your thermostat and maybe the, you know, there's a big number on the top of it that says how much electricity costs right now. Um, I don't think that we'll be getting alerts on your phone that tells you to turn off your lights. I think that you will have programmed that, you know, this is the minimum lighting level that you're happy with if you're home. Um, and, you know, some um, some other automated stuff like that. Yeah. I did, I was listening to some other other podcast, a competitor, I can't remember the name, so I can't I can't mention them and, and draw don't viewers away them, from yeah. this one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember the name. But um, they were interviewing somebody who has, you know, like a, a, a similar kind of thing to the app that I was talking about in Australia that helps people manage their, you know, time of electricity use. And it was saying one of the most useful things that their app does is um, it it's watching the state of charge of the battery in your electric car. And so if you're if it knows you're at home and your car battery is low and that you haven't plugged in, then it will send you a reminder that says, hey, did you mean to not charge a car? Because, you know, like it's it's about to be it won't have enough for you in the morning. Um, so there will be ways that they can add value um, to the customers, you know, draw them in with something that improves their lives. And then I think from there, it'll be um, a reminder that says, you know, if you had agreed to be on our flexible plan, then you could have saved $20 last night because, you know, there was this event that you couldn't participate in because you were asleep or stuff like that. I, I don't think it will be as intrusive as your thermostat being, you know, or your air conditioner being turned off or your... Yeah, you go like, you know, yeah, I'd like to turn uh, it up to 72. An alert on your phone every every five minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah telling you well. telling you what to what you need to get up and do or it wakes you up at two in the morning. Put your laundry on now. Like, it's not <laughs> it's not going to be like that. Um, I'm thinking... Well, <laughs> it'll, be, I, it'll be a bit more user-friendly, oh, I think. Yeah. When I woke up this morning and I, uh, this is what I'm thinking about, we have like the Nest thermostat where it's, it's really user-friendly, actually, the, the user interfaces. But I'm thinking like you push the, you push the thing and then you turn mm. it and it's like it'll be 72 degrees in your house in 25 minutes and, it, doo -doo. and i'm thinking like if it said like this will cost you seven dollars and 46 cents you sure you want to do that like Ooh, seven yeah. bucks that might pay for lunch nah mm. 70s fine <laughs> like yeah it could but, do that. It okay. could already do that. Yeah. You can already forecast the yeah, electricity price or it could know your tariff or, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But economies are based on energy. They just they just are. And But they're not based on wasting I, I, energy. And we waste so much are you energy. Sure? This <laughs> Have you met America yet? <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't have to be. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I have. <laughs> Okay. I have met America. Well, uh, I, have things, right. I have opinions about the way you use energy over there. No, I, you can have opinions about it. I'm just saying every 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 country, every nation, every development that has happened has happened because of the availability of energy. And that could be in human form or it can be in nuclear, oil, whatever. You pick your poison. Uh, but that's how societies grow and that's how we get there. You're not going to see a country willingly cut energy production or cut the amount of energy that's delivered because that um, without something significantly happening in. What culture, about energy I efficiency? 
What what about if you have well, sure. a, you know a huge cold cold store cold store in your company and you get onto a wholesale pricing plan and now you know you sure. turn the freezer on in the middle of the day when you get paid to do it because prices are negative and then it will you know maintain its temperature right through to the next time that happens like yeah. that company is making more money now by using uh, energy right. in a way that helps helps the grid I I just think it's going to be things like that it's not going to be about not using the, any energy to do productive things. It's about using it smarter, much smarter. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm I'm with you. I'm obviously if there's a financial advantage to to use us energy, people are going to do that, or companies in particular are going to do that. It just gets to the point of it becomes too much to manage. And you're you're a new mom, right? And you know how time management is becomes super critical. Do you think you have time to? check the status of your electric vehicle, make sure it's charging all the time or what your thermostat's set at. There's some things that, that, that can be know. done. <laughs> yeah. You sort of run out of, you run out of time in the day. Right. And I think when, when these projects always pop up and you see a lot of SaaS companies in the United States that are talking about these projects. And I think when is the time if someone's going to do this when the average citizen's going to do that? I, I don't yeah. think that's going to happen. I think it's going to be more of engineering people like everybody here of we're going to design more efficient homes, we're going to design more efficient cars, we're going to design more efficient airplanes, which we've all done, by the way. We've done all those things. Uh, so it is... Well, you find <laughs> time to go to the, the petrol station and fill, fill your car up. So I think you, you can find time for, for some new things. And I think yeah, also the successful companies are going to be the ones that don't require their customers to make more time. Some people will be happy to trade off time for, for money, um, like, you know, the person that's happy to sit in their car for an hour to save a couple of dollars or <laughs> filling up their, their tank. Um, and some people are going to be yeah, happy to maybe. hand over, you know, s s tell Tell an app what parameters they're happy with in their home. You know, never go below this temperature, never sure. go above it. Sure. Um, I always need my dishwasher finished when I wake up in the morning. Um, you know, stuff like that. And they'll be happy for a smart a smart app to okay. take care of the rest. All right. All right. So I'll, I'll give you the rosemary theory of relativity, right? <laughs> Every time we bring up a topic like this, it's like relative to what, right? Replacing lights mm. in America and incandescent lights with LEDs is probably one of the largest power changes that's happened in America in the last 20 years. But it's taken 20 Easily. years. Yeah. Oh, no, it's taken it's 20 years. Still but you think on. how much energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But think about how much energy we are using less. We're using less energy now in lighting. All the street lights in America are going to LED at the moment. Mm -hmm. Those are huge numbers that we don't talk about. Right? We talk about changing the thermostat mm. all the time. But the real the real numbers are in sort of these wider scale projects that we pay short shrift to all the time. And it just makes me crazy to think, you know, people have worked their whole lives making those LED lights. Right. And, and what a huge power saving that is and how much power is in the United States in particular. It goes into lighting, how much energy reduction that is where we haven't built power plants. We haven't built that coal plant because we've just switched light bulbs. That's what I'm getting to. There are things that we can still do at that level, which are easier to do and probably have more impact than turning down our thermostat. Not that we shouldn't think about that. We should. But, uh, you know, there's plenty of engineers working really hard to make life a little bit easier. And I think that's one of the things we just miss. Ping Monitor is a continuous blade monitoring system which allows wind farm operators to stay ahead of maintenance. Wind techs can often hear damaged blades from the ground, but they can't continuously monitor all the turbines. They also can't calculate how bad the damage is or how fast it's propagating based on sound, but Ping can. Ping's acoustic system is being used on over 600 turbines worldwide. It allows operators to discover damage before it gets expensive and prioritize maintenance needs across their fleet, and it pays for itself the first time it identifies serious damage or saves you from doing an unnecessary visual inspection. Stop flying blind out there. Get Ping's ears on your turbines. Learn more at pingmonitor.co. France's highest court has ruled that a man fired by his Paris-based consulting firm for allegedly failing to be fun or quote-unquote fun <laughs> enough at work was wrongfully dismissed. So they actually fired an employee in France because he wasn't fun. <laughs> 
so in the holiday in the holiday spirit you know it, it gets to where we're all going to holiday parties at least in america and i guess it sounds like denmark has a really good blowout season in in uh, christmas parties uh i thought this would be an interesting topic to talk about so the, the man referred to in court documents as mr t was fired from cubic partners in 2015 after refusing to take part in seminars and weekend social events that his lawyers argued uh, according to court documents included excessive alcoholism and promiscuity <laughs> so so I, I don't know what's happening in france but it just seems like the that's not really quote unquote fun is it but it is, isn't it isn't it odd I, I just i just think it's such a weird thing to have happen in france and uh, in america i could totally see it there's there's 330 million americans stuff happens like this all the time unfortunately <laughs> but to not be fun doesn't seem like a reason to get fired. Isn't it really hard? It's weird, it's, right? It's really hard to fire someone in France anyways by their I, labor laws. I thought so, too. So this guy must have been yeah. really not fun for them to make that move. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he must have been like, I would call him a, a Debbie Downer. He must have been like this, the Debbie Downer of Debbie Downers or something. Right. Right. I so sympathize they, but, with Mr. T. I don't. I don't want anybody telling me when or how I have to have fun. You know, I leave that. That's a decision for me. And I. I will say though that I really miss the Christmas parties in Denmark, yes. which definitely yeah. there was a lot Sounds of alcohol, fun. and they definitely have a reputation for um, promiscuity. <laughs> but I, I never actually saw any evidence of that myself. So it might might be one of those urban myths. Um, yeah, I definitely missed that, and I did find that fun. But I wouldn't think, you know, you can't pressure somebody to get drunk if they don't drink alcohol or just don't feel like it on that particular day. I don't think that, that that's right. And I definitely have been in situations through my career where I felt like, you know, to fit in culturally you had to do some non-work stuff that wasn't really your preference. Um, I Yeah, I... It is important to, you know, have a team building and have fun together um, to, you know, get to know your teammates and um, sure. develop that relationship. But I, like I said, I feel for this Mr. T. Fired for right. being not fun enough. I keep reading this. I'm reading this article and I keep thinking about The Wolf of Wall Street, if you guys have ever seen that movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm thinking. Awesome. Like, man, that's that's too much fun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking here. Like, Mr. T maybe has a point Yikes. here. No, I, yeah. I think some moderation is probably good. I, I, the they, the courts actually ruled that he was entitled to his freedom of expression, so not participating is his expression of where he where he wants to be at that moment, and that was part of his fundamental freedom under labor labor and human rights laws in France. So, I, I so was they a- they I guess. Are they? I don't know if he's reemployed at this company. He doesn't like working at. Probably not. Is that what happens? Or he gets so. paid out? I would say here here at the I hope you got paid out. But I think that they I think they also mentioned um one of the reasons for getting fired was the tone and facial expression he used in meetings or something. Yes. And that just kind of triggered me from when I lived in America, people used to tell me to smile all the time, just random strangers. <laughs> and I would be like, This is my face. Like I get to I get to <laughs> really what happened. I do with my own face. Rosemary. Like come on. Come on. <laughs> what? You must have been in California. That's the only place that, that would occur. I California. was in California. I was <laughs> in California. Okay. It happened constantly. It happens very occasionally in Australia, but almost never. And in Denmark, I just actively just enjoyed looking at everybody scowling in front of their computers every every day. Just I'm like, yeah, you know, this is it's work. It's work. You know, I'm here. I'm working hard. You know, my resting face is uh, not a smile. It, it looks like a frown, even if I'm not actually upset. And I, I would feel pretty oh, no. put out if my company told me, oh, your facial expression is wrong and you have to plaster a fake smile on your face every day, then, I mean, that would be a bad cultural fit and I wouldn't want to work there. But if I got fired for that, yeah. I I would not think that was reasonable. No, you're right. It's, it's a holiday season. Have a little bit of fun, but keep it within the bounds, right? I think that's, I think it's where society is at today. Years ago, Christmas parties used to get a little wet, in my opinion, I would have been that guy who would not have fun. Like, this is out of bounds. Much. Everybody's just being stupid here. <laughs> Right. It's too, it's too much fun. We've gone back past too much fun. Uh, but they seem to have reined it in a little bit. So it's fun. I, I think it's now enjoyable to 
meet with coworkers or people you haven't seen in a little while uh, that you can spend some time together and it's not in a work environment where it's sort of drudgery <laughs> because most people are, at least in America, tend to be a little bit pleasant and you can have some fun with them. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know. I, I'm not going to talk about California or Denmark. I don't know. But it, from what I hear, Denmark is a lot of fun in turn to Christmas parties that they actually take yeah, days the Christmas off. Party. They save up, they save yeah. it up yeah. all year. Can, can, it's fun quota each day. Can confirm. Up can confirm. It's all unleashed <laughs> yeah. in a Christmas party. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy podcast. Thanks for listening. Please take a moment and give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Cool.